So you have in front of you the, uh, the article that we're going to be looking at by Rabbi Sheila Peltz-Weinberg, and the teaching she's going to bring um, from Rabbi uh, Nachman of Bratzlav, the, the Bratzlava Rebbe, uh, a mystic, you know, a Hasidic mystic, um, prone to bouts of serious depression. He was bipolar, most likely. So he had manic periods of being high, 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 and then followed by really low, low, really low lows. So what I love about the teachings of Nachman of Bratislav is because he was bipolar, I feel like I can relate to him better than some people who are always kind of in this place of either being truly in this other place of connectedness and openness <laughs> and lightness. Like, not, and not to make fun, like, like they, I envy them so much, and I, it's just so not me. And then um, also, he knew what it meant to really dig deep, to, to just dig out of the hole of why should I get up this morning. So anything he, comes to, anything he comes to tell me about the darkness, anything he comes to tell me about the void, anything he comes to teach me about a disconnect from God, he knows way more than I do about that. And so um, I just, he has so much authority for me. Uh, both about the depths of how despairing we can get uh, and about the places that we can really reach when we find a way to confront that, which, of course, is the theme. And confront in a good way, like confront meaning with an intention of working with it to, to help um, bring us to another place. Not that darkness is bad, but that we always want to figure out what to do with that. You know, what, what are we going to do with that? We can't just sink into it and stay there. We can use it. We don't have to leave it. We don't have to be like by. Bi- we don't have to be binary. It's got to be good or bad, white or black, light or dark. Um, we do want to bring it with us, but we also want to move it somewhere. Right? That that darkness and that that pain. So um, I really respect him that way as a teacher that he struggled his whole life. He died at the age of like 43. So everything he's written is written when he was younger than I am now. I'm 49. So I, I think, what? wow, like, okay. You know, this is not some, some person who's like off somewhere and disconnected from, you know, reality and um, having lived a full life and now he's just going to take some time to reflect. I mean, he He's in the depths of struggling with all of it uh, when he's writing this stuff. Rabbi Sheila Peltz Weinberg, you know, you know, you know, we study the commentary of everybody who writes on the Hasidic pieces that that we study. Rabbi Sheila Peltz Weinberg, an amazing teacher, uh, is a teacher of mindfulness practice, so mindfulness meditation practice in a Jewish context. She has studied with Sylvia Borstein. She studied with some of the greats. Um, she has been the meditation portion teacher of the uh, Institute for Jewish Spirituality now for uh, a long time. Because I completed the program when I was pregnant. And Eliana, I was six months pregnant. Eliana's now 10. So I completed the program 10 years ago, and she'd been in it before that. And she's just recently retiring now. So um, you know, for 15 years, that's really what she's been doing, is teaching rabbis at the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, teaching rabbis about what it means to bring the mindfulness practice, the embodied practice, the, right, the intention of sitting in silence practice back into our Jewish um, realm of normative, uh, which we haven't had for a while. It's been kind of marginalized. It's been edgy. 
and now it's um, because of people like Sheila, more normative. So, so I learned with Sheila. So I'm going to take a little license sometimes with um, what I think she might say, but you should know this because I've done two years of uh, silent meditations uh, with Sheila uh, and have loved every minute of sitting in her presence with her guidance. So let's go to the actual text. Uh, as you know, when we uh, gather for this particular series of classes, um, we start with the actual text, and then we'll look at what Rabbi Weinberg has to say about it. So who would like to begin uh, the text? Page 33. So the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was, Exodus 20:18. If one spends one entire life in materiality and later on gets enthusiastic and wants to follow God's path, then the quality of judgment argues against that person and doesn't allow him to follow God's ways and creates a hindrance for him. But God desires kindness and leniency, and God hides and hides God's self, as it were, in that hindrance. And one who is aware looks at the hindrance and finds there the Creator. As it says in the Jerusalem Talmud, Ta'anit 13a, if someone says to you, Where is your God? you shall say to that person, in a great city in Aram, as it says, God calls to me from Seir, Isaiah 21.11. All right, as usual, this feels like Greek to us. Right. We're like, what did any of that have to say to me right now where I am? I have no idea. All right, so the first idea that we're going to get introduced is from Exodus 20.18. So the people remain at a distance. What does Moses do? Approaches. Moses approaches. And what are we talking about these things being in relationship to? The cloud, yes? There's two things going on here, and I'm going to separate them on purpose. They're a unified thing in reality, but for our purposes of pulling it apart, I'm going to say they remain our distance from the cloud or get close to the cloud and where God was. And of course, that means for the rabbis, is Torah is true for all time, right? It's, it, it's not a history book. All right, so we have the people remain at a distance. Moses approaches. What is that in relationship to? The cloud. And then where God was slash is. So one spends one's entire life in materiality. And later on gets enthusiastic and wants to follow God's path. What does that mean? One spends one's life in materiality and later on gets enthusiastic and wants to follow God's path. What, what is this talking about? And it, there's not a right or wrong. Like, what, what is he exploring here? What's Nachman talking about? He's trying to bring something forward. Going deeper. There's, beyond the, beyond the, just the physical every day. And when does that happen? But he's also splitting. He's splitting materiality from... He's splitting materiality from getting enthusiastic about following God's path. So there's a tension. 
So Nachman is never going to buy the split between materiality and spirituality. He's never going to buy that split. Jews never bought that split. What he is saying is there's a focus on the material versus a passion and enthusiasm for following God's path. Like, okay, so the godly always exists within in the material for Judaism, always, across the board. There is no physicality without God's presence, which is what we're going to get even from more firmly later on. There is, however, a difference in our focus, right, on either materiality or an enthusiasm in following God's path. So what Nachman seems to be talking about is a desire to go deeper. Sometimes, what triggers that? What are the kinds of things that trigger that? Tough times. Tough times, crisis, sickness. Age. Pausing. Pausing. Age. Loss. Loss. Hmm? More. More. Gratefulness. Gratitude. I was going to say even sympas and gratitude and good times too. So there, there seem to be moments, either literally moments or periods in our life where these forces, either of loss and of illness and of despair and of whatever, or of I need I'm ready for more. Out of gratitude for all that there is, all the abundance, I'm ready now. Pick me, pick me, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to dig. He's talking about that pivotal moment of shifting. We all know some time of this. Maybe not an extreme one. It doesn't have to be an extreme one. But a time of going, wait a minute, and you, you, and you, you even... Notice that you're going, I'm ready. There's something more, there's something else, and I'm ready now to know what that is. Or we're pushed into it by crisis, by loss, by illness, by a challenging of all the material security, I mean, all of the security, let me say, that materiality used to bring us. And we're called into question, like, uh-oh, like, what is the more? What? What really is happening? What what remains when when that falls away? Because my security just fell away. Is he talking about one moment in life, or can this happen multiple moments? I think it happens multiple moments. You know, we can. I, I don't I don't know what he means, but I but I want to use it as saying there are moments, periods, times. Maybe one big one. For y'all know somebody, right? Do y'all do you all know somebody who had one big shifting moment and like it all changed? Like there are those, and then there's some of us who live lives of oh, and oh, and oh, and oh, right? Like that that it happens periodically. But but I want us to get it that that's what he's talking about. Those moments and or the moment um, of where it turns, where the focus, the, the focus shifts dramatically and you, you're now interested in a whole nother level of what's going on. So that's what he's talking about. When that happens, and we're just going to stay out of judgment and out of reaction, I, I'm talking to me, 
uh, about <laughs> language here because we're going to try to get at you know the deeper spiritual truth that Rabbi Weinberg, who's more evolved than me, is really good at, like just kind of easing into. But I have some resistance to some of the language. So, um, so when when that happens, the quality of and instead of judgment here, Dean is what's meant here. I'm I want to say, and I know it's a, a miss translation, but I'm doing it on purpose. I want to say the quality of justice argues against that person, not judgment. We, we have so much judgment about the word judgment that I want to stay away from it, right? What, what Nachman means is din. Din in our tradition is a very long mystical tradition and it predates the mystics. It goes to the rabbis. Din is about strict fairness. If we just look at what's fair across the board, here's what it's going to mean. That's the aspect he's talking about that comes up in that moment of turning, that moment of wanting to go deeper. There's this element in the universe, because those of us who don't believe God is a being, right? those of us who experience God as the connective tissue of the universe, there is an element in the universe of justice of equity, of balance, of fairness that just is. And I would, in my language, probably call it consequence. It just is. And we don't get to say whether we like that or don't like that. Sometimes we do when it works for us. Sometimes we don't when it works against us. But right there, there's, this, there's this aspect to the universe of equity, justice, fairness, consequences and he says that always comes up against our moment of being ready to go deeper there's this other thing that just is in the universe that then gets confronted like those it's like a thunderstorm there's nothing bad or good about warm air there's nothing bad or good about cold air when they come together boom there's a thunderstorm, there's lightning, and that does some interesting things. And sometimes some damage. It could also be the, the record of your past. That is definitely part of the universal idea, not idea, the universal reality of consequences, right? That we all carry those with us. Um, and and I again, I don't mean divinely out there consequences. I mean, like, I think what you're saying, Mark, is... We just have our past that we schlep with us, and that brings some stuff. I mean, whenever you go through a major change, the pattern fights back. So I look at that hindrance as the, that internal hindrance when you're consciously going to evolve yourself as opposed to being at the effect of a crisis. The pattern always fights back, in my experience, anyway. So that's where we're going. Okay. No, those are to go to the retreat. But thank you. She's so considerate, our Julia. She lives here, Don't you love Julia? We love Julia. <laughs> Julia Hubner, affectionately known as J-Hub. Okay, so we go to the line that says, but, here's, here's the but. Usually but's a bad thing because it negates everything that comes before it. But in this case, I get that but in this case, but is a good thing. 
Because what it says is, but even though there is this thing that's going to come up to, to push against just the reality that balances your desire to go deeper and do it differently, my desire to go do it differently, um, but God, the essence of what godliness in this world is, is a longing, a desire for kindness and leniency. Yes? And so what the universe does is veil the presence of divinity, the presence of love and kindness and encouragement for you to go deeper. It veils itself in hindrance, in what looks like the obstacle, in what looks like the Samsonite luggage of your past, to quote Mark without quoting Mark, and to, right? <laughs> and one who is aware, one who's really ready and really awake and really prepared and really, really aware, looks at the hindrance and finds there the creator. This is a huge thing. This is not a small thing. This is big. When you look at the veil and still see the creator, that is a huge thing. You've arrived. You are coming to arrival. As it says in the Yerushalmi, as it says in the Jerusalem Talmud, Ta'anit 1-3a, if someone should say to you, where is your God? You shall say to that person, where would you normally say, where's your God? We're talking about the Palestinian Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud. Where is God? In Jerusalem. Hundred percent in Jerusalem. But this says, "Oh my gosh!" This says, "If it should, if someone should say to you, where is your God?' You shall say to them, in a great city in Aram, as it says in Isaiah chapter twenty-one, God calls to me from Seir." Now it's all clear. Yes? Well, of course, that makes sense. Right? Exactly. So God is, where is God? God is in Aram, says the Palestinian Talmud. And where else? Because where do they get the proof text for that? They get it from Isaiah, which says God is in? Seir. 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 With whom is Seir associated in the Torah? All right, so Las Vegas. <laughs> Las Vegas. That's why I left a lot of room on this side because we're going to fill it in with Las Vegas, Cabo. Okay, so all right, so someone read that because we've only gotten through one paragraph. So someone go to the next paragraph in case y'all thought, oh, this is short. How are we going to fill in an hour and a half with those? Yeah, read that. Right? Someone goes to N1. And one who is not aware when one sees the hindrance immediately moves away from it. The hindrance is like a thick cloud, for a thick cloud is dark and a hindrance is dark. The words darkness and hindrance, or that which holds back, share the same three Hebrew letters. Pek, Shin, Shin, Kaf, I hope, mm -hmm. as it is written in Genesis 22:16. 
You have not withheld your son. This is the meaning of the verse. So the people remained at a distance. When they see the thick cloud, namely the hindrance, they remain at a distance. But Moses, who represents the quality of awareness for all of Israel, approached the thick cloud where God was, namely he approached the hindrance where the blessed God is actually hidden. Okay. So now, when one is not aware and one sees the hindrance, one immediately does what? Moves away. Moves away. Further distance. How beautiful is that? Look how gorgeous that is. Mm -hmm. This is what Torah is actually trying to come to teach in the verse from Exodus where it says the people remained at a distance because most people who are not aware, who are not spiritually like there yet, when they see the cloud, the hindrance, what do they do? They remove themselves to a distance. So Torah's not talking about history. Torah's talking about a tendency. Torah's talking about a reality for all time of what we do as human beings always. The hindrance is like a thick cloud. For a thick cloud is dark. What does, what does the thick cloud do? It blots out the sun. It blots out any other lights that are around. If you're in a thick cloud, Duluth, Minnesota, there's a postcard that they sell in gift shops in Duluth, and it's just black. And you turn it over and it says, you know, Duluth at night. And then there's one that's all gray, and it says, you know, Duluth in the fog. Right? Like, there's, you, just, you just don't see anything. It's just all dark. So here, here's where it gets brilliant. Darkness and hindrance, or that which holds back. In English, these are not related. This is why these are Jewishly spiritual texts. These words have nothing to do with each other in English. So you read this and go, what is that talking about? Right? But in Hebrew, there is a relationship, check this out, between darkness, hindrance, and that which holds back. And he's not just making this up, because if you look at those letters that make up that business of darkness, we've got what? We've got a choshech. Well, always, we never were talking about a root, talking about a word. We're talking about a root, so ha give it to me. What's the root? Chet, shen, Right? If we write out choshech, if we write out darkness, then we get, you know, a word. But the, and the shoresh is chet, shin, kaf. In Hebrew, the gorgeousness of this is choshech. Remember whenever we have these words, these letters in a row, you know, you got to know it's the same, like kadosh, is kadosh, kiddush, whatever. Baruch is bracha, baruch, all that stuff. It's the same thing with this. If we do choshech, it's darkness. We get this in Genesis, yes? 
And darkness was on the face of the deep, even before light is created. Darkness already exists. Choshech al darkness. But there's this verse of Genesis 22:16 where God says to Abraham, "Kach et bincha et yechidcha asher ahavta." Take this son, your only son that you love, and bring him to me on the mountain. And later God says, "You passed the test. How did you pass the test?" Lo, lo, chasachta et bincha. You did not, what is it? Withhold, withhold. Thank you. <laughs> you did not withhold your son from me. Same shorosh. Same tripartite root in Hebrew. Choshech and chasachta. You didn't hold back your son. So in Hebrew, he's saying, Rabbi Nachman is saying, we know there's a relationship between darkness and a holding back. Between the cloud and wanting to keep our distance. There's a, there's a relationship between choshech, darkness, and chasachta, you didn't withhold. So there's, I mean, I'm, I'm putting the word did not right here, but the actual word is chasachta, withheld. You didn't withheld. Where are those two shins pronounced differently? Shin and sin uh, interchange. It's only one dot that changes a kaf into a kaf, or a shin into a sin, in terms of how the rabbis are gonna read these words in relationship to each other. So, choshech, and, and you're right to hear the difference in the sin, but it's that for them it's the same shorish. That can't be an accident. Mm -hmm. There's no accidents. This is absolutely related. Pronunciation changes, but, but the choshecha or the chasecha are the same letters. So there's some relationship between darkness and withholding. And Rabbi Nachman says, of course there is. Because look back to this verse. Most people, when they confront the cloud, the darkness, remain at a distance. They withhold themselves. They are the same for him as a spiritual principle. Have I lost you or are you with oh, me? Is withhold that would be the same as resistance? Uh, yes, that's that's where that's where it's going. That withholding oneself yeah. is resistance, yeah. right? I'm not going there. I'm going to withhold myself. So I, that means, by definition, I'm resisting. Is that fear? So so let, let's go. Let's see. This is the meaning of the verse. So the people remained at a distance when they saw the when they see the thick cloud, namely the hindrance. They stay at a distance. But Moses, who represents the quality of all Israel, approached the thick cloud where God was. Namely, he approached the hindrance where the blessed God is actually hidden. We are told by Torah, God was in, in fact, the cloud.
the darkness, the hindrance. God was there. Moshe knew it. The rest of the people had no clue and do what we all do, which is back up. The minute resistance comes up, we listen to it and we go the other way. Or we just stay frozen or we do whatever we do. What does he mean by the word represents? Does that mean he embodies it or? In Kabbalistic language, which is where the Hasidim draw all these texts from, um, there's, uh, in English, we might say associated with mm-hmm. rather than represents. So Moshe in Kabbalistic tradition is associated with the awareness of all Israel. Oh. Like the, um, he's the symbol of. That's what it really means. Don't read Moshe, the person, God forbid. Mm-hmm. It's talking about Moshe, the quality of all Israel, like our potential. Right? So in Kabbalah, Avraham is associated with this, and Yaakov is associated with that quality. So when you see their names in Torah, it's not them as personages only, it's that quality. So then the Hasidim and the Kabbalists are able to say, so if this quality beats up on that quality, but then they make peace, what it means is this quality of strength from us has to engage with the quality of mercy and we have to find the balance between them and that is peace. You know, like, so they, they read a quality into each of these personages that then results in a teaching um, that is beyond an, a narrative about characters. All right, so someone read it, we heard. We heard more of this teaching directly from the Holy Nachman that God actually hides God's self in the hindrance. <clears throat> Scripture says God loves justice and God loves Israel, but the love with which God loves Israel is greater than the love with which God loves justice. All right. So what Rabbi Nachman's students say is that they heard directly from his mouth, from the mouth of the Rebbe, that God actually does cloak or veil God's self in the obstacle, in the hindrance, in the cloud, in the darkness. And Torah already teaches us that God loves justice. Meaning, remember how this happened? Remember how the hindrance happened? Because we have Samsonite luggage. That's how this happened, right? God doesn't want this. It just is the quality of justice and God loves justice. It's what's fair. It's what's, it's what's consequence. It's just what happens. And so that's the way things are. God loves that. And here's the good news. God loves that, but God loves Israel. And the love with which God loves Israel, or you could just read humanity here. I'm fine with that. Um, with which God loves humanity is greater than the love with which God loves fairness, justice, equity, consequences, the weight of Samsonite luggage. I really have a problem with that sentence. Tell me. It really rings wrong. Tell me. Well, I'm trying to understand it in a way that doesn't say that defense of Israel is more important than justice. Because that is that that oh, yeah. okay so, so I'm trying to read it in a way that yeah, yeah. doesn't yeah, yeah, say yeah. that that's good that's because, good right because right. there's a part of that the only way I can do that is to think that because Israel sins and doesn't always do the right thing 
that God's love for something that's imperfect mm -hmm. is greater than God's love for justice, which is perfect. That's it. Wait, so say it again. You just answered your question. Say it again. Well, yeah, that's the only way I can read it. So it do it. That God, God, okay. Israel, as all people, are not perfect. So God's love for something that is not perfect, because God has to forgive that and understand it and relate to it, is greater in a sense than God's love for justice, because justice is pure and God doesn't need to go really bend her will or however you want to understand that. That's the only way I can understand that sentence. But the first time I read it, it didn't say that to me. So thank you. You just, you totally Is that what reconstructed, yes. So when, when I think about it, I think about the love of my, for my partner or even more for my child and sometimes even more than that for my dog. <laughs> I'm serious. Like when she's getting sick on the carpet, I swear there's this part of me that wants to go, I'm done. It's a four-legged creature that all it does is, I'm, I've had it and I'm tired and I'm cranky and it's going to stain the carpet. Like really? Again? And like there's no part of me. All I'm connected to is what's fair. I'm tired. I'm grumpy. She's staining the carpet. She doesn't contribute. She doesn't do anything. And she consumes a lot of food and vet bills. And now she threw up the pill we just gave her that cost money. Like, I'm, if justice were to rule, I'd say throw her over the balcony. <laughs> we're done. And in that way, none of us could say we don't get that. We all get I hear what you're saying. Is there's a part of us that wants to go, wait a minute. Like, it and I did too. Israel I did too. Is better than justice. So, it doesn't say that. So, I mean, it kind of but what I'm saying is like, because the dog doesn't, if strict you know, evaluation and justice were to come into it, it'd be like, you know, you're right. The dog kind of needs to go. Mm -hmm. If you're measuring the quality of life of the family and the quality, you know, and, and yet, thank God, built into the universe or into us as microcosms of the universe is this love that is bigger than our love of justice and what's fair and right. And that love is what saves my dog and my child routinely from, you know, things that would be really unpleasant. Mickey? It gives Israel and all of us a chance to uh, do teshuva. That's right. And the right, right thing. That's right. Because Which God loves more than God wants to see justice actually carried out. God wants us to go, wait, activate the thing of love, which means, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll change. Yeah. Right? God wants God's love to be activated, not God's sense of retributive justice, is what the Hasidic teaching is. I love, I love that teaching. But the, where else does uh, God uh, differentiate between God's, God's uh, degrees Lots of places. Lots of places. So the rabbis, and it's, a, it's rabbinic. It's totally rabbinic. That the rabbis see God as constantly having to mitigate God's own impulse to deen, justice, and rachamim, compassion. And that they are constantly in battle, in a way. And the, uh, on Rosh Hashanah, if you look at the liturgy carefully, it says we're trying to move God off of Kisei Hadin, off of the throne of justice, 
onto Kisei HaRachamim, onto the throne of mercy. Meaning we know both are built into the world. We're going to try to tip the balance in favor of mercy, compassion, you know, because we, we don't earn it. We just got to try to get you there because you love us. And the teaching is that's what God wants too, right? I want my daughter to come say, Mommy, I'm sorry. I understand what I did wrong, and I take full responsibility for that. Like, I don't want to punish her. I want to be moved off Kisei Hadin. I want to be moved off the throne of judgment and fairness and what you deserve and consequences onto the throne of compassion and gentleness and mercy. That's, that's all of this, of course, is written by people, right? All of this is written by people who who want to be moved themselves, I think, from a place of, here's what should happen, here's what you deserve, you know, to a place of, but what would, what would radical love call me into right now? Okay? I mean, it also seems to me that this is a chance, this allows God to be God. And so it's, it's I keep thinking of yin and yang and sin sun, it's this partnership, um, and I may not be explaining it, well, but it's in my brain. <laughs> that um, that this act of that that to be merciful, as opposed to being you know authoritative and just with justice, that that we who are imperfect and human, it's it's a partnership, and that's how it allows God to be God. And I'm sorry, I can't explain it anymore. Isn't there? Isn't there some connection between, I always forget which, which Adonai and Eloheinu? Adonai and Elohim. Uh, and Elohim. One, meaning, and Elohim. One, mean, one which was taken by the rabbis to mean the justice. quality of justice and the other what compassion. Happens. We use it all the time 100%. in our prayers. We always use both of them. You should look up online an article by Rabbi Harold Schulweis called Adonai Elohim. It is one of the best articulations. Um, and, and I give it to people like... Constantly, I run out of copies all the time. Like it, it is one of the best articulations of this principle of both are built into the universe. Our security guard Lester just diagnosed with multiple myeloma, tumors in both arms and one leg. It is incurable. He's 47 years old, supporting his 92-year-old father, his two children who live with his ex-wife. So he doesn't even have access to them, but he supports them. Like so, that's Elohim. That's the element of poison in our environment that brings us to cancer and early death. That God is there because God is present in all parts of the universe. That's just a consequence of DNA gone wrong, of DNA being damaged. This is what happens. It's without quality you know it's just kind of outside of judgment in a way it's just what happens if you poison the water and you poison the air and we're breathing jet fuel and we're sitting on scotch guard at some point like they, there's just a natural like that god is in that for sure because this is all god and there's this element of yodhevave this this element of love and compassion and mercy and all this other stuff that goes into us feeling like, and yet we can change something about what that all means. And that's what this is talking about, I think. 
Grandma Schulweis married Steve and me, and he said, I guess because we're both lawyers, so he actually brought us up at our wedding, and I didn't know the whole depth of it, but he said that fairness is important, but fairness needs to be tempered with softness, which was is like another way of, you know, yes. as opposed to compact, you know, you know but round out the edges. Yeah. The uh, thing that's troubling in this discussion is this sort of concept of a separation between the person and God. But in Tell fact, me more. Well, I mean, God is in the cloud. God is in this room. God is everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it's not like some independent person is walking to or through a hindrance. Because if God is everywhere... It's a hindrance. Exactly. Then it requires... It, it also, you could also not see God or connect with these attributes in times of joy as well as times of darkness, which I think sort of talks about how you started defining Rob Nachman. Um, so it, it's just, there isn't really a separation as much as there is... That's where he's going. Okay. So, so, so Mark, you get to read the next part. Oh, good. Yeah. I was trying to figure out a way. <laughs> so, yeah, thus, yeah. Thus, when the quality of judgment argues against one who is not really worthy of coming close to God because God loves justice, God is compelled, as it were, to agree to the arising of hindrance on the path. These hindrances are, indeed, the result of the person's evil deeds. After all, God cannot ignore just consequences since God loves so the thing that's built into the universe is that there's just junk that's going to get in the way when we decide to change because that's the way it is. And God is part of that too. That that's just the universe we live in. And go on because, because you, Mark, go on. I'll read the sentence. Because God loves. Oh, because God loves Israel even more than God loves justice. What does God do? God is forced to agree to the hindrances for the sake of justice. However, despite this, the truest truth is that God wants the person to be able to draw close to God. So God gives permission to place the hindrance in the way. But God hides God's self in the hindrance. One who is aware, more mindful, can find God in the midst of the hindrance themselves. There really are not any hindrances in the world at all because in the hindrances themselves is found the Holy One. Through the hindrances themselves, in fact, one might draw closer to God because that is where God is hidden. And this is the meaning of Moses' approach to the thick cloud and, this, and that is the hindrance for that is where God was. So like you said, there is no separation. Right. God is there. And God says, okay, I get it. I've created this universe wherein there are just laws that exist. If you hurt somebody, they're going to be pissed off at you. You don't get to go there tomorrow and say, hey, want to have lunch? How many of us have done that? I know I dissed them. I know I blew them off. And yet we go back going, so, want to get a burger? And they're like, don't think so. God loves that too, right? God gets it that a universe has consequences and justice. The teaching of Nachman based on his 
creative reading of Torah and of the Talmud is, but, here's a secret, but God loves us more. God wants our closeness more than God wants it all to be just fair and just what should happen, you know, tit for tat. God really wants us to be close. And so what God does, going against God's other self, is God really, mamash, puts God's self in the hindrance. So God puts candy in the punishment. Right? God, you know, not the punishment, but the, the consequence. Right? That God hides God's self in that very thing and wants us to come close. To find God even there. That's what God, and that's what God gives us as a loving gift. We're going to go to what Sheila says about that. But Carol's troubled, though. Yeah, I am troubled. Okay. So, so I hope, I'm hoping that I'm reading this the wrong way. There's no wrong or right. There's lots of different ways to read everything. Okay, because to, to me this looks like that um, any tr- troubles in your life or what have you are due to your own past evil deeds. No. Thank you. That's why I'm... No, yeah. Your hindrance, your distance from God is there because of what we have done that put up the roadblocks. Pain is pain. That has nothing to do with God. That's just the world. That's just biology. Fibromyalgia is just biology. That's just what happens. This is talking about distance from God. That's something else. Now, if we allow our experience of pain to distance... If we approach pain and then go running in the other direction and say, then there is no God, that's one option. Lots of people take that option. If we say, I'm going to sit through this and find... And I don't don't even want to pretend to know the words for someone who's in pain. For the days I don't feel it, for that it's less today, that it's not in this place where it was yesterday, um, for a new article, for new insights, for people praying on my behalf, for my dog who cuddles with me anyway. Like, that, I think, for Nachman, who suffered terribly, which is why I trust him, he, he really believed that was key. Do I approach the cloud or do I see that as a hindrance? And, and remember, he doesn't ever release hindrance from the world. He doesn't say, oh, and then the cloud dissipates and everything's hunky-dory and glorious and we've reached nirvana. There's always a hindrance. The question is, are we like Moshe who approaches the hindrance and finds God there too? Not only, or more, or better, or more real, but two, or do we go the other direction and say, it's a hindrance, so God's not here, obviously, so I'm going in the other direction. To me, it makes perfect sense, because how can we continually grow if we don't have cycles and cycles of hindrances in which to go plunge further, deeper and deeper? and get a stronger connection with God. Thank and you. It also feels like, in some respect, maybe a lighter respect, it's very much a paradigm for, for 
her loving parenthood. <laughs> right? Parenting. You got to keep telling me this. You just have to keep the love paramount, regardless of what That's exactly is. right. And that's it. It's like Shalom Bayat, or peace in the home. No matter, even if you have the issues are there, the greater goal is the... That there's a wholeness, the wholeness, even with all of it there. Yeah. So Marilyn, you've earned 35. <laughs> uh, the paragraph that begins in our text. Page 35, 35. Uh, one, two, three, like the fourth paragraph down in our text. In our text, the theme is struck from the outset that God's presence fills all reality, even the places we imagine are devoid of God, the places of delusion, constriction, resistance, and judgment. How could God be coming from Seir, a biblical place associated with temptation and violence, Las Vegas, the Pentagon, you name it, the theological view that God is to be found in all these unlikely places is an approach to all spiritual practice. The invitation to the practitioner is to rest in the very moment. When we have the courage to release the struggle with what is, we see more clearly what is true. We then find ourselves more able to be in God's presence as it is revealed in this moment. Mm. So she's saying what Nachman is saying about when you're asked, where is your God? Rabbi Nachman says this bizarre quote from the Palestinian Talmud, which is my God is in Aram, as is quoted in Torah, which means it's revealed by God, God's self, in Isaiah, from Seir, which is the same as Aram, which is Las Vegas. <laughs> The Pentagon. Anybody else want to put something in here? Couldn't you say God is everywhere? Well, of course. That's what that's what he's saying. So why would you say yes, God is everywhere? But why say when you're asked where's your God? Why would you answer my God calls to me from Las Vegas? Because even in because even we say God is everywhere, isn't that a lovely sentiment to put on a Christmas card? But really, is God in Las Vegas? In the darkest. In the darkest places we can think of, in the Pentagon, in the stock market, in the like. Think of the in the Holocaust. Where is really, really? You're gonna tell me, really? God's there too. Mamish, really? That's a whole nother ball game. That's a whole nother business than saying, yes, God is everywhere, right? We, we can all blithely say that until we start getting really technical about, really? Really? Well, then you say, what are the qualities of, what that mean, the qualities of that God? That doesn't mean God approves of everywhere. Ooh, it's getting heavy. All right, go to the bottom of page 35, last two sentences. Somebody read. As Nachman says, If one is not cultivating awareness, the natural tendency is to move away from the mania, the obstacle or hindrance. Yeah. In meditation, it looks like this. I am sitting and anger arises. It may be an old or new story triggered by anything I see or hear or remember. There is no easy avoidance. I am sitting in silence. I can't reach for a drink or a magazine. Anger, like other unpleasant states, tends to trigger habitual reactivity. 
following the trial of these unwholesome the trail, sorry, right? trail yeah but it is important these, for that reason there's a big difference but right unwholesome states without awareness can lead to more confusion and to acting unwisely. The tendency of the untrained mind is to get rid of the anger as best as I can. This usually means moving away through various strategies such as judging myself or blaming another for this unpleasant and uninvited experience. In any case, I move away from the actual arising of anger. Anger is the hindrance, the mania. This moving away is itself a form of aversion that arises in relation to various stimuli. When we push against the hindrance or try to run from it, we notice that a struggle erupts in the mind and body. All right, so what he's really getting at is cultivating awareness is about challenging our natural tendency as just the, the Israelites. We're the Israelites, all of us. It is natural and normative and okay and fine that when a maniach, an obstacle arises, what do we tend to do? The cloud arises, the people stand at a distance. I'm sitting in the grocery store line. And always, because this is what always happens, the one I get into does not Move. The rest of them move. Mine runs out of tape. Someone ahead of me can't find their thing they need. They run back for another quart of ice cream. Like, and so what happens? The obstacle to experiencing God is here. God is everywhere. Right? You know, like life is good. What happens? I get frustrated. I get angry. I get anxious. Right? We don't even have to go to mindfulness meditation because. She looked, you know, this is what you ultimately learn from mindfulness practice is that you can even be alert and aware in a grocery store line. Um, so you're in the grocery store line, the anger, the anxiety, the frustration comes up, and what do most of us do? We move away from any understanding um, of that being about God or growthfulness or holiness, and we immediately go on kind and we go into our whole tailspin, don't we? You know, but I'm just thinking, take this one step further, and you sort of enter the door of addiction. Because Yes. Yes. Because when we push against the hindrance, we run away, and then we bury the pain. She's very clear. Drink, magazine, they're the same. Alcohol, heroin, TV, Magazine, the same thing. I love TV. I am not here to criticize distraction or entertainment. What Sheila's saying is, when those things come up that are the obstacle, the cloud, the darkness, that bring with them agitation, anxiety, frustration, anger, resentment, jealousy, when that monster comes up, we tend to just go, I'm going the other way. So that means, fine, I'll just take the of gum. Or I'm just going to kick the basket over here. Or, or like whatever we do, we want it away from us. Moshe in us knows the only way 
to, if we really want, remember, this is not about you have to. Please remember that. Nowhere does Nachman say you have to do this. What he says is, there comes a moment in time, a moment in life, when materiality is not enough. And we want more. He's not saying anyone has to do this. But if you get to that place where loss or gratitude, whichever end of the scale you come from, has pushed you to a place of getting it, that there's a whole other level to exist at, then one of the first lessons is that anxiety, that frustration, that anger is a place to push in. Push out. Push into it. I mean, I'm not saying that. Yes. Push yourself. Yes, out. Push into it. Because ultimately, God is there. Not meaning God created it so you could have a lesson. It's that it too is learning for you because that's the way the world is. And it's your own internal obstacle that stops you from working through the Because if you walk through a cloud, what happens? You get through the other side. I was walking on the beach in snowy, icy Minnesota on the shores of Lake, um, on the Lake Superior one day with my dogs running. And like it was freezing, I was cold, it was cloudy. Um, and then all of a sudden the clouds like moved and like the sun came out, it was blue skies. And I was like, woohoo! And I just went, really? 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 Two minutes ago, you were miserable, blah, 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 blah. And then the sun comes out and the blue skies, and you're like, wow, it's a great thing. It's like, the sun was always there. Like, why? Why? We, but, but, you know, we so need, like, but, but if you walk through a cloud, on the other side is clarity. And so the teaching is when we push into that experience and don't just habitually react and pull away or react to put up our own, I don't have to, I don't have to put up with this. Then we have the opportunity to really move into what we're saying we want, which is a level below fascination or compulsion or whatever with materiality. Because often the way we move away from it, Mark, is incredibly damaging. Incredibly damaging. It's yelling at our kid. So I don't have to feel my own exhaustion or overworking. Because if I just yell at her because she did something wrong, somehow I'm justified. You know, or you know what I'm saying? Like or addiction or like fill in the blank. Cutting. You look at these young girls who are cutting. I mean, cutting is all about right release of the pain because they because they don't have the tools to like deal with like what and Believe me, I'm not judging. I'm just saying, honestly, you're right. I'm not trying to minimize how damaging the consequences of moving away from the resistance are. They are seriously huge. So the practice is, according to Rabbi Sheila Pelz-Weinberg, is to move into relationship to, oh, look at that. I am really frustrated. I am really angry. Huh. What does it mean to not then push away? Like, what does it mean to say, take a deep breath, and I'm going to stay with a lot of curiosity about that? 
huh, that really made me angry. I'm really not happy. I wonder what some of that's about. And at the same time affirming, I really want to not go to the habitual places, right, of reactivity. Tonight I was asked to go into JNET to do a five-minute bracha before they did their program. That's an, so it's 7 o'clock to 7.05. That's all we need. Okay, great. So I'm going to come in there and do that, and I can like, get my stuff ready for class and whatever. So I go in there, and I've got my teaching ready. I'm like feeling good. It's about the Mishkan. It's about gifts and what you bring into the communal space and this is good. And I bring my all Hebrew Tanakh. No English. <laughs> all Hebrew. And I'm going to read some lines from the Torah portion and whatever. And I get in there and there's this man sitting there in a very white shirt, black pants and a black velvet kippah, full beard that lets me know he is extremely traditional. And don't you know, all of the air went right out of my sails. The hot air balloon fire got turned off, and it just went down to, oh my God, I only brought Hebrew. Oh my God, I didn't bring reading glasses. I don't even think I can see it in this light. Um, so you know, I'm not going to use that text, because like, I can't really see it, and I don't really, it, it's like, like all of that stuff happened and then I'm hyper aware now of everything I was saying in there all the joy was gone and I was just like okay I don't want to screw this up I don't want to make reconstructions look dumb I I don't want to look dumb I don't want us to look dumb I want to look Jewishly knowledgeable not for me but because I'm defending reconstructionism and women rabbis everywhere and like and then wow. I left, and then I got, my, and I went to one somebody who was still working, and I just said, "I don't get it. Why does it still do that to me? Why can it still do that to me? Why can there be seventy people who are like, yeah, because they they clapped after something I said about you know because I was taking over senior, and because someone asked me to say who I was and what and." And they were like, yeah, you're going to be seen. And it's like 70 applause meant nothing next to one presence of. And you don't even know the big And so the big thing that I said to the person who was still working here is I said, why can it still do that to me when I don't even know what that person is thinking? Mm-hmm. He is here. Mm-hmm. So if he's here. Already, doesn't that say something? I have no idea. What, he didn't say anything. He didn't flip me off. He didn't, like, walk out of the room. It's heavy sounds, and I'm, like, I'm dragging behind me. So, so, so here's what I'm trying to tell you is that, again, that moment, I'm, like, right before I came to this class, I'm just like, why can that still get me like this? And, and then we started having this conversation about la, 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 la. Well, aren't we always going to have this trigger? Boat is really about pushing through them, and you still did it, and you did it, you did it, and you're going to teach a class, and these people like, came to hear from you, not from somebody else. And, and so then it was just kind of the light bulb went off. I'm like, <coughs> hello, hello. Funny how that's what I'm teaching tonight. <laughs> Funny how what I'm teaching is what happens when the obstacle arises. What happens to us, right? So we have choice about that. Like, my, and in in another time and place, I would have reacted 
and been completely flustered and or whatever. The good news is as we learn to push in and even in the moment go, huh, guess what I'm reacting to? Somebody and all that's going, you know, you choose to push forward. You can make a choice about pushing. I can make a choice about pushing forward gently, respectfully, with a lot of prayer and encouragement um, into stuff anyway. And then we come out the other side and go back to the office and go, isn't that silly? Isn't that silly that I let that, st- you know, right? The, but So you can come out the other side. The challenge is we so often get stuck at the they won't, they won't want to hear that. They'll think I'm dumb. They'll think we look stupid. And so I don't go out there, right? Or I don't give it to Vartora. Or, right? It's, it's, and that's the whole point, I think, of, of the teaching. Jackie? I just think when you push through those things, there's nothing that makes you more elevated than pushing through those entrances. I think that's probably some of the biggest joy you get in life. Thank you. But the, it, this doesn't deal with why we don't push through, which I don't think it's enough to say just because we don't realize God is there. Mm-hmm. We don't push through so often because of fear. Mm-hmm. And that gets down to what are we afraid of and why are we afraid? Mm-hmm. And that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> right. But it's a, it's a missing piece here because God may be in that and I'm sure a lot of us have had experiences that were maybe horrible at the time, and in looking back, we said, you know, God was in that, because it was only because of that that but something is, else wonderful here. happened. It is but, but it what is I think it is, too. Because you're going to read now okay, maybe, maybe. page 38, Bert. Okay. You just yeah. earned yourself oh. page 38. The paragraph starting it, isn't this what Nachman's trying to teach us? this what trying to teach us in the text. Yeah, I should have read the whole thing. <laughs> He is calling us out of the delusion that we can be safe by hiding from the darkness as if it were some other realm out of God's purview. He is inviting us to a non-dual view of reality. It is our insistence on seeing ourselves as the center of the universe, isolated in our uniqueness, that locks us into the grip of suffering. Okay, so Mark, you think there's an answer to what Bert was just raising. I've given what I think was the answer. What do you think? I think where he says goes back to what she was saying, that we fall back into our habitual mm-hmm. mindset. And you saw a beard and it <laughs> triggered a whole litany of memories and experiences. Mm-hmm. And there you went, it pulled you. So the question is, what is the force that pulls you through? Mm-hmm. What is the belief that the cloud will pass? Mm-hmm. What about right. that cold day in Minnesota when the cloud but what I, I got from that and from your story is the man, the Orthodox Jew is not the hindrance. Your anxiety is the Correct. hindrance. Correct. The, Always. The scary guy on the street corner is not the hindrance. It's your fear of him. Mm-hmm. Correct. That's the hindrance. So what we need to learn is when you're in a situation and you start to feel the panic come up, you go, oh, wow, there's that panic coming up again. Mm-hmm. I can let go of, I can become aware of that panic and then it doesn't overtake me anymore. So I think that we always think of the hindrance as being the illness or 
the bad thing that happens, but I think mm -hmm. the hindrance is really the thing that keeps you from being able to embrace whatever the experience is. But some fear is good. Yeah. Some fear is constructive. Right. If we so, didn't have fear, we'd be dead real quick. Right. So, and so it's a question so of how do you but sort it's out. hindrance in terms of if it impedes your life. I mean, if it, you know, right. it's like so, it's detracting from your ability well, to experience yeah, your life. there's fear and there's anxiety, and mm -hmm. those are very different, I think. Right. So, so there's this so, training I did that was about... Um, yeah, that talks about the amygdala. When the amygdala goes crazy, you know, that part of the brain that's the alarm mechanism goes crazy, the frontal lobes are designed to go offline. Because if your frontal lobes interfered, you'd be saber-toothed tiger food, mm -hmm. right? And we've not evolved yet. So there's this um, practice of, you know, of engaging different sides of the body, the butterfly hug, um, you know, buzzers in each hand, you know, that go up to, to bring both parts of the brain back online, to bring the frontal lobes back online while the amygdala is screaming. And it's like, that's, I think, what he's saying when he says he's inviting us to a non-dual view of reality. That they are both there. They are both real. It's non-dualistic. They're, they're all there. They're all real. It is our insistence on seeing ourselves as the center of the universe, isolated in our uniqueness, and this goes to suffering, not to the threat on the street, that locks us in our grip of suffering, right? That, that somehow I'm unique in the fact that this man is sitting in my synagogue, and it's in my group that I was invited to talk to. They're in my, I'm the rabbi at this show. They're in my situation, and I fought so hard to get here, and I'm getting, right, that we get locked in our unique, it's like, you know what? This is life. We all have places we're triggered. We all have pain and Samsonite luggage. And we all have things that are always going to come up. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that painful? Isn't that a reason to treat each other with gentleness and compassion? Because everyone else in this room, that, that room that I was in, had that too earlier this week. All of us. He had it too. He had it too in his life. And Maybe so it's when I get God. stuck in my uniqueness. Maybe he was one. Right. he was God. Like God. <laughs> it's totally about seeing, class. right, the opportunity for me to learn absolutely from godliness. And that moment calls me to, right, it's only when I get stuck in this is happening to me. <laughs> right, that I'm special in this. You know, there's like, Everyone at the, in the whole room had that same experience 47 times this week. No. So what do we do? The goal in this building, anyway, is to talk about, okay, so we have some choices. Not always, but some. We, we have a lot of choice about how do we hold that. Do we want to choose to, to, to go to a distance? Or do we want to, like Moshe, say, huh, so where's the God for me in this right now? Where and not that God brought it, not that God did it. I don't believe that. It's just not how I work. Um, but I do believe I'm invited into a non-dualistic understanding that this too is an opportunity, Amy, for you to look at your own resistance, your own fear, your own baggage, your own whatever, your own ego, you know, or whatever, your own pain, your own disconnection, your own fear of being rejected. Whatever it is, and just kind of go, huh, there it is again. And really, that's all it takes is, huh, 
There it is again. And to hold out with some gentleness and some space and some compassion and lots of love. The same way God does, says Rabbi Nachman. Just keep coming back to thinking about a lot of the things you're saying, the significance of the symbolism of the cloud for this thought of darkness and withholding and challenge. It's not a rock. It's not a scary mountain. Beautiful. It's beautiful. It's there to push against. Beautiful. It's a cloud. Oh, that's beautiful. And it's Dafka, not the rock. So there may be, there are other, you know, the clouds are dark, but folding, all those things are sort of intangible. Oh, Natalie, that's beautiful. That it, that it, the image they pick is the cloud, which by its very nature, if you just push through, guess what? It dissipates, you know, you, you walk through it. It's not saying it's a mountain that you have to take a, you know, and... Yeah. I keep thinking about this thing about pushing through and the difference between pushing and reaching for. Because with the cloud, you're reaching, it, you know, the difference between pushing through is, um, I mean, even just the act of physically pushing, it's, I can feel all this stress, even in my hand. And in the act of reaching for what I want, it, everything is open. And something about the cloud being, you know, it not being a rock, uh, you know, to you can reach right through it. And there's something about, uh, I don't know, this reaching versus pushing thing mm-hmm. that, um, it, in in approaching, you're, it's a reach. It's not a push. relationship. Invitation. It's a reaching for. Openness. It's a for something. I'm an Aries, for. and I think I just kind of. Really, these clouds, you're going inward, you're not pushing out. Because so much of the baggage and whatever the block is, is, is inside. Right, the metaphor is, is coming through the cloud, reaching through the cloud, however it works. For, but you're right that the, the work is penetrating the cloud this way. Yes, the interesting thing about, in terms of not research, brain research, and meditation. Because you see these brain changes, and you can have much deeper inward awareness, which enables you to respond rather than react, and to be aware of what insecurities are, and threat, and so forth, and what your buttons are, and so forth. You know, but if you go back to this text we just read, I mean, to me, the key words are this duality, illusion and where you find God, all put within her teaching of mindfulness. And isn't that really at the end of the day what we're talking about? To be mindful that you can work through whatever the blockage is and come out the other side. I think so. That's the phrase I was thinking of is coming out the other side of it, which you know you you would with a cloud if you're gonna be literal. But yeah, that you just to know to have faith that exactly. it's going to be okay and you'll come out. The phrase I was thinking of was uh, coming in for a landing. Mm-hmm. We've probably all done it. Wow, right? Right? right. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. it's clear. There's right. land. Right. right. And there's got to be nothing scarier for pilots. Yeah. Right? Then they're told visibility is like <laughs> like nothing. And that moment where they get like visibility has got to be that moment, right? Of coming in for the landing and then somehow what happens? Like when we just keep well, you have jetting. Faith. Well, faith 
right? And and so courage, and real courage, courage yeah. and bravery and commitment. And I mean, we could fill the room with words that I think, not words, but you know, but yeah. real things that it calls from us. Because I don't mean to be trite in any way about what this calls from us. Because it it takes faith, it takes hope, it takes courage, it takes strength, it takes patience, it takes you know, it takes so much. Mindfulness practice takes so much to say. I'm going to retrain myself to be someone who wants really in all of these moments 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 of resistance to to choose to do it differently if I can right now and that that takes just sitting up straight in a chair think of all the little muscles of the spine like all the things that engage and that's what mindfulness practice is it's about taking the mind and at like muscles around the skeleton saying we're gonna train it to, to to sit up and Sheila always taught us that it's like it's either so you're if you think of your mind it's an elephant you know your your mind is just an elephant it just goes where it's gonna go and it tramples anything in its path and so the question is is there this you that's gonna ride the elephant and guide it or are you gonna get dragged along by the elephant wherever it wants to go and an elephant is how many tons is an elephant? It's an apt metaphor. How huge and powerful is an elephant? And so the mindfulness practice is about riding the elephant. It's not about, oh, if I just choose to be in this place of blah, choose a beautiful day. It's like, I just want to blow up remotely people's answering machines that just say, choose a beautiful life. It's like, <laughs> people who really deal in mindfulness practice are dealing with Riding the elephant, it means gripping your knees and like really having resolve to say, I'm going to turn this 70-ton beast in a direction of love and compassion, patience and gentleness and openness, and that is constant work. It gets easier. As the elephant gets trained, it gets easier, and there, there is where the beauty is is that it does get easier as the elephant gets trained. Um, but that's our work, is to train the elephant to go in the direction of godliness, of walking a holy path. And that is not easy, is what we've built this place to be about. I'm so grateful that each of you chose to spend your evening here talking about this, exploring this, and and hopefully what we're all doing is growing in the work of of doing that, of turning our lives, uh, you know, every time we do this, more towards lives of, of holiness and completeness and community and togetherness.